there's one of these great perennial age-old questions that's winding its way through the texts that we've just heard this morning, a question that is as germane, as perennial in these complicated days as it was 3,000 years ago when the psalmist asked, Lord, who may dwell in your tabernacle? Who may abide upon your holy hill? In this morning's gospel, Jesus gets called on the carpet by the religious leaders of his day. He castigates them right back for honoring God with their lips but failing God in their hearts. The letter of James, a couple maybe 10, 20, 30 years later, picks up that thread, this question that James asks, what constitutes genuine religion? What does that look like? Is it belief? Is it behavior? Is it ethics? Is it ritual? How do you know you're practicing the real deal and not some sham version? And James is pretty uncompromising in his letter. It's a writer who is pretty much uninterested, actually, in what we say with our mouths and what we believe in our heads, theology, doctrine, dogma. For the writer of James, religion basically comes down to one thing and one thing only. Be doers of the word, not just hearers. Be doers of the word and not merely hearers, he says. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Caring for orphans and widows on the one hand, keeping yourself unstained on the other hand. I would submit to you that that is a nearly impossible paradox. In some ways, caring for orphans and widows is kind of the easy part, right? At least that's the more concrete part. That's where progressive Christians tend to go, right? What do you do? Bible code, orphans and widows, is kind of like Bible code. It's a kind of conventional figure of speech. It's metonymy in the New Testament, right? Orphans and widows means everybody who is poor and defenseless. It means helpless people, marginalized people, people in prison, people who are crying out for justice with nobody to hear them. And according to James, that's the whole point of religion, Right? You take care of the people who have no one else to care for them. That's what it means to be a person of faith, according to James. But here's the thing that James, I think, knew, that I think the psalmist knows, the thing that Jesus knows when he's confronted by the Pharisees, which is that you can't really pay attention to these people. You can't care for orphans and widows in, in their distress while at the same time keeping yourself unstained. Like that is a logical impossibility because when you start paying attention to the very real needs of orphans and widows in this world, when you, you know, sign up to take a shift at the Trinity Food Pantry, handing out bags of food, when you sit with women and men on the streets and listen to their stories, when you put yourself in proximity to orphans and widows and start learning how not just to throw money at them, but really to listen to care about their needs, to care for them in their distress, which is what James talks about. When you do that, you can't help but start asking yourself, like, why, why are things the way they are? Why do some of us have all that we could ever want while others of us depend on church people handing out food bags? Why, why in, in one of the richest countries in the world are there so many starving people on the streets? You start caring for orphans and widows like James talks about this is what, you know, he says, this is what pure and undefiled religion looks like. We take him at his word. And right away, the stains of the world, the deep questions, the muck of the world starts to creep into your soul. And you're left with way fewer answers and a lot more questions. 
Because it's a hard world, and the people who live on the margins of this world see and experience that reality on a daily basis. And when we, when we learn how truly to care for them, when we put ourselves in positions of vulnerability with them, we start experiencing that hardness, that difficulty, those doubts. There's, there are a lot of ways to keep yourself unstained by the world, but caring for orphans and widows is not one of them. Not if you're doing it with any kind of real integrity. See, I think, I think that the writer of James has set up for us kind of a deliberate paradox. Caring for orphans and widows while remaining unstained by the word, it actually invites us in this really interesting, mucky, creative tension. Because it turns out there is no such thing as pure religion. It does not exist. None of us can, can live up to the impossible ethical standards that we are handed, right? None of us will live what the psalmist calls a blameless life. Raise your hand if you're living a blameless life. And I will point at you and say, liar, right? Liar. None of us are living a blameless life, right? We do, we do, we do our best. I mean, you know, we're good white people, you know, like we do our best with the circumstances we've got. We try to help out where we can. We try not to make things worse. But the scale, the, the immensity of the pain that lies about us is too much for us to bear sometimes. I mean, I can, I can hardly deal with my own pain, let alone somebody else's. So what do you do? What do you do when you feel like you're being called to make a difference and the scale of the world's problems feels so immense and impersonal and impossible? I had an interesting experience this week. Um, <laughs> on Thursday, uh, a bunch of us, clergy and lay leaders, gathered down at the um, Immigration and Customs Enforcement Office, the ICE uh, headquarters here in Portland. We were part of this ongoing protest. Uh, wait until you hear about it, wait until you hear about it. <laughs> we were part of this ongoing protest that's been going on for several months now, um, seeking to draw attention to the hundreds of men, they're all, most of them, political asylum seekers who are being detained by ICE in two federal f prison facilities here in Oregon. They're people who are fleeing religious and political persecution from their home countries, places like Bangladesh and Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador. And most of them are being denied access to legal representation. They've been separated from their families. Some of these men have no idea where their kids are. It's horrific. Um, it's hard. And little by little, we're starting to see some momentum, right? The first dozen or so of them have been released. They've been reunited with their families. We actually got to hear from, meet one of them on, on Thursday. His name is Albert. He's from Cameroon. And his stories are incredible. They're horrifying and they're amazing. And he said, you know, keep up the pressure, keep the, keep the energy going, it's having an effect, it's making a difference. What was new for me, as some of you know, is that I was one of the 22 clergy who got arrested at this protest. They, uh, they cited us for creating a disturbance, and depending on your definition of disturbance, I think we did. We sat in a circle around a small homemade altar with a candle on it, and we prayed, which is what clergy do. We held hands. We sang this little light of mine so many times that if I never hear it again, I will be a happy man. <laughs> we sang it over and over and over again. We sang, let the circle be unbroken. We sang, we will not be moved. We sang, uh, one, of, one of our members taught us a song that I had not heard before. I think it's come out of the, the, the poor people's protest that's been happening this summer. And for me, uh, this song has kind of stuck with me. It, 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 it encapsulates this, this creative tension, this muckiness of the life of faith that is the heart, I think, of what James would call pure and undefiled religion. The song goes like this. Deep down inside of me, I've got a fire going on. 
deep down inside of me, I've got a fire going on. Part of me wants to sing about the light. Part of me wants to cry, cry, cry. Deep down inside of me, I've got a fire going on. It is easy for most of us in this room, I dare say, to remain unstained by the world. We live in a society that has set things up for us pretty well, so that by and large, we don't have to get our hands dirty if we don't want to. I've never been so, so physically aware of that as when an officer very gently turned me against a wall and handcuffed me with great gentleness and kindness. And I realized how well I was being treated and how different it would have been if I was not a white guy in a clergy collar. I've never experienced in such a, such a visceral way the gulf that lies between my experience in this world and the experiences of people like Albert and Luis, the, the orphans and widows of this world, the people who on a daily basis experience stuff I can scarcely imagine. At the same time, I've been thinking, I've been thinking a lot about why I showed up on Thursday, right? Why this protest? Why this particular situation? I care about the issue, absolutely, but there are, there are lots of horrifying things happening around us all the time. And to be perfectly frank with you, I have not tended to think of myself as the kind of religious leader who shows up to a protest in order to get arrested. I mean, I know people like that. Some of them I consider to be my friends and my colleagues. That has not tended to be my thing. I have... I have tended to choose what's safe and prudent over what is daring and perhaps dangerous. But we were going around the circle a few weeks before the protest happened, a group of us talking about what was likely to happen, um, the likelihood that some of us, those who were willing, could be arrested. And one by one, I heard my colleagues saying things like, you know, I just, that's the bit I can't do. I'm in a custody battle with my ex-wife, and my lawyer has said, don't, don't do anything to mess it up. Another one of my colleagues said, you know, my wife is here on a green card. We're already under heavy scrutiny by the government. I don't think I can risk that. Another one of my colleagues is transgender. Uh, and he said, you know, like, that's a, really, that's a really scary thing for a transgender person. I don't think that's a good thing for me to do. And I was like, yeah, that is not a good thing for you to do. So we're like looking around the circle, and one by one, my colleagues are naming the very sensible reasons why they should not be arrested. And it was like, well, shoot, like, I think I'm the last one standing. <laughs> like, I, I can do this. This is a thing I can do. I have a ton of privilege. I, I can afford to get arrested. Like, and I had to ask myself, like, is, is this the thing? Like, is this the thing that I can do today? Because sometimes the only thing that you can do is to show up. Right? There, are, there are a million different ways to show up. Right? Some of them are dramatic and they involve a federal citation, but most of the ways that we show up are not the attention-grabby, news headline kind of ways. They're actually a lot more important than that. You know that you're onto something. You know that you've like, found the, the sweet spot of a pure and undefiled religion when you find yourself smack dab in the middle of that creative tension that the letter of James is talking about, that gulf that threatens to keep you unstained by the world. You know you're showing up for the work when you start getting a little bit stained. And ironically, the thing that keeps your religion pure is when you muck it up a little bit. Because clean and unstained hands, I don't think belong in a pure religion. 
Not in Christianity, anyway. That is, that is not the Savior that we preach. We preach a guy who has marks in his hands. And those marks were put there by the world. They are the stain of the world. So the only way that we do this, I have learned, is not when one person kind of steps out there. It's when we do it together. There's actually not a lot of room in Christianity for standalone heroes, Bonnie Tyler notwithstanding, right? I am, I am much more interested in what it looks like to develop a community of change. On Thursday, I drove to the protest with my friend Chris. She's one of the organizers. She's my, my husband James's boss over at St. Michael and All Angels. And the only reason that Chris and I were able to show up for this protest was because James was at home watching Chris's kid, right? So while we were out on the street, James was at home with Jack. And it was James who posted all the, the pictures that kind of started getting out there and going viral. He did it from Chris's living room. We couldn't have shown up if James hadn't been at home with Chris's kid. And so many of you, when you saw what was happening on Thursday, when you, when you saw you know, all, all that was going on, you reached out with care and concern, not just for me, but for the, for the people who are most affected by this situation, for the other clergy involved. And I cannot tell you what it means to have that many people reaching out to you in support and concern. I've got your back, right? I'm with you. We don't do this stuff on our own. And I've never been so, like, I've never been so intimately aware of the network of community that supports clergy in being able to do stuff like this. There are no heroes in this fight. There's just you and me, everyday people who are looking for the large and, more importantly, the small ways to make a difference, to beat back the darkness a little bit. It's the whole point of religion, as James talks about it. It's the it's the thing that we are gathered in this room this morning to remind ourselves of. James says it's like looking in a mirror, right? It's like looking in a mirror. You hear these ancient words, you gaze into that mirror, and you see what you really look like, who you really are, right? People with, with more power and agency than we think, the power to, to do something, to change something, to make meaning in a meaningless world. And James says, don't forget don't forget what that looks like. Don't forget who you are. Don't be a hearer of the word who, you know, gazes into the mirror, you know, gets, gets a glimpse of it and then wanders away, right? Deep down inside of you, there is a fire going on. Part of you wants to sing about the light. Part of you wants to cry, cry, cry. Deep down inside of you, there is a fire going on. Remember who you are. Remember what you see? Remember what you hear? You're part of this incredible community of people, the communion of saints, right? People for hundreds of years who are doing something powerful in the name of Jesus. James says we, we welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save our souls. It's not enough just to listen to it, just to hear it. We have to act on it. We have to do something about it. And what James says is, I can't act on your word, right? You can't act on my word. There is a thing that is planted in your heart, and I can't tell you what that is, but you have to do it. You won't actually discover what it is until you start doing it. The word that's planted in your heart, not anybody else's heart. That's the way this thing works. And when we come together, each of us, with our own piece of that mission, we do this thing that is so much bigger than any one of us individually. That's religion. 
It's when people of faith and goodwill are bound together and because and in spite of our efforts, we are able to accomplish stuff that we could not have done on our own. That's why we're here, to do the work of Jesus. There's no room in this tradition for heroes. What the world needs is communities of change. And when we do this work, when we step out there and step up and find our place in it, we experience the salvation of our souls. It doesn't work unless we do it together. Amen.